Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I am Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, light and darkness. Why having a dark sky at night is healthier for all living things on Earth. And why humans don't get enough of total darkness and total light. And how it's messing with our circadian rhythms, including our sleep patterns and possibly our reproduction. More on that with our guests in just a moment. We have a podcast to which you can subscribe for free, as I guess it usually works with podcasts. Go to our fairly new website, planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with us during the show or ask our guests a question, write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com or drop us a line on Facebook. We are there, and we're also streaming live, so you can see Joe's very bright Hawaiian shirt that he's wearing in case you go on Facebook. Got it in Mexico. There you go. <laughs> you can see what it looks like by checking in on Facebook. But first, we have a couple of news stories. We're going to start out with Tommy Martin, our intern from Cabrillo College, with this story. The patch of trash floating in the Pacific Ocean is now more than twice the size of Texas. Researchers from the Ocean Cleanup Foundation took 1.2 million samples in October 2017 using large nets and aerial images to analyze the patch's growth. Sometimes called an island of trash, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch now spans some 600,000 square miles. Within the patch, there is approximately 80,000 tons of plastic. Nearly half of the weight collected by the researchers composed of fishing nets, while other common items included plastic bottles, plates, and bags. The UN predicts that by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. The Ocean Cleanup Foundation is working on a system of large floating barriers with underwater screens which concentrate the plastic to be collected. Unfortunately, even this system may not be a foolproof fix as it does not collect microplastics. And according to a recent UK report, ocean plastics are predicted to triple in the next decade. The researchers say a radical shift away from single-use plastics like bags, straws, cup lids, and bottles is needed to stop the patch's growth. We can have an immediate impact on that problem by bringing your own bags and, like I said, don't take that plastic lid unless you absolutely need it. I heard Starbucks is working very hard on a recyclable cup, and given that they're probably 50% of the garbage patch, no, that's not scientific, it's a good thing. On another note, a completely different note, scientists at MIT have shown that they can get water out of a stone. Well, not out of a stone exactly, but out of even the driest desert air. The system, based on relatively new high surface area materials called metal organic frameworks, or MOFs, that is not a slur, can extract potable water from air with relative humidities as low as 10%. Current methods of extracting water from air require much higher levels, 100% humidity for fog harvesting methods, which we have spoken about on this show, and above 50% for dew harvesting refrigeration-based systems, which also require large amounts of energy for cooling. So the new system could potentially fill an unmet need for water even in the world's driest regions. The test device was powered solely by sunlight, and although it was a small proof-of-concept device, if scaled up, its output could be the equivalent to more than a quarter liter of water per day per kilogram of MOF. And really, that's, you're allowed to say that on the radio. <laughs> that's an exciting story, actually. Yeah. And uh, those MOFs are turning out to be useful for a number of interesting and important things. Um, I've got 
a couple of items, and I want to try the first one, the, the one that involves a sound file, which our engineer Griffin is going to play for us. Uh, but first, I will preface it by saying that I was at the big march in San Francisco yesterday, the March for Our Lives. Uh, there were hundreds of these around the country, and the big one in Washington, D.C., where estimates of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe half a million. Uh, San Francisco had, I would say, at least 100, maybe 200,000 people. Um, I'm really inspired by all the energy and awareness that the young people have. They are our (laughs) great hope for the future. And um, I met three young ladies at the end who are teaching and doing research and uh, just decided, hey, it'd be nice to get a little bit of pieces of people's minds uh, from from this event, uh, what they see going on and uh, whatever hope they have for the future. I will say uh, one of them is a science teacher, and she uses the um, acronym STEM. She says STEM. <laughs> so just watch out in there. That stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. That's a whole new sort of, well, not new, but it's a new name or buzzword in education. So I think we're ready with that clip. It's about four and a half minutes long. Okay, this is Joe. I'm in San Francisco at the beautiful Ferry Plaza at the far end of Market Street. We just marched with thousands of people down Market Street in the uh, March for Our Lives against gun violence in America. I've found three young uh, teachers and researchers here at the end of the march, and I want to just get their thoughts for a bit on technology and uh, society and the future of the world and you know this particular problem of this abnormal gun violence in America what are we going to do about it and what what are your hopes for the future so first up here is Shannon who's teaching at Berkeley High School welcome Shannon hi thank you for having me um so yeah I've been teaching at Berkeley High School kind of experiencing that what has just occurred and I know that it was definitely um, a scare for a lot of students and we um, had definitely had a lot of conversations at the school but being a science teacher at Berkeley High School um, I'm also the head of a STEM tech club so I'm really trying to convince students to pursue technology and keep um, and it's a lot living in the Bay Area a lot of students parents work in technology and we're constantly pushing the students to think about creativity and inventions and kind of that for the future but at the same time it's how are we going to balance this progress that we're trying to um, push our students to maybe pursue and that that aspect with um, with what can happen with technology if it gets out of hands, like what just happened with the whole Facebook issue and it was kind of like how do we find that balance, which I'm also trying to figure out myself when I'm telling my students about like wanting to learn new things and explore technology but at the same time what kind of regulations or things need to be put in check like there might be in some other countries um, if technology could um, get out of control so it's just trying to like find that for myself and then try to communicate that to my students well thanks a lot uh, Shannon and next to Shannon we have um, Sarah who was teaching science for a couple years and now she is uh, in a program in management at uh, Stanford University. And welcome, Sarah. What do you think about all this? Hi, thank you. Um, so this issue actually hits pretty close to home for me because while I was teaching, I lost one of my really close students to gun violence. And um, this happened This happened in his own home, um, you know, and it, if we didn't have guns like this, that he might still be here. And so i um, really hoping that we can change all of this and um, I 
just think this shouldn't happen to students especially. They should be able to graduate from high school and not have to deal with all this. You know, thanks so much, Sarah. Condolences to you on your friends, the loss of your friend. Uh, sitting also with us here is Radhika, uh, and she is a medical researcher at, uh, is it UCSF, uh, uh, University of California, San Francisco, and a few thoughts from you, if you would, Radhika. Hi, Joe. Thanks a lot. Um, I think it's just really crazy and seems ridiculous that all of us, teachers, researchers, anything, anybody that's trying to uh, help the world and make it a better place. So for me, we do uh, medical imaging research and try to improve diagnosis of patients who have uh, life-threatening diseases and we just want to make their lives better so they can get a faster, better diagnosis. Um, and we work hard to make these things happen and then there's something so basic like gun laws which are not figured out and students can buy guns and shoot each other. We think that this is a basic issue that should get sorted before anybody tries to make any more progress in any technology, be it medical or be it Facebook or be anything in Silicon Valley. I think this should have been sorted out way before and it definitely should be done now. Well, thanks very much. And uh, just these three young folks with their vision and intelligence and articulateness uh, give me the hope that I hope we all can have for some kind of change for the better in the future. So good luck to us all and thank you. And really nice to meet you here in San Francisco on Saturday, March 24th, 2018. And thanks for that report, Joe. I'm sure it was really inspiring just watching the videos. I wasn't able to go um, of the m kids from Parkland uh, speaking. In fact, the six and a half minutes of silence was equally powerful um, to mm -hmm. honor the people who had died and also to uh, show people how long it took for those people to get killed in such a short amount of time. It was very mm -hmm. moving. My last little item, I think, since that sh story went on pretty long, I'm going to just give it as a preview of coming attractions it's definitely in the stay tuned stage anyway namely there are lawsuits going around the world going on uh, in this country and around the world against the oil majors uh, for uh, the huge role they have played in uh, making the climate mess that we are getting deeper and deeper into. Now, the oil majors come back with the argument that, hey, it's not our production and extraction of fossil fuels. It's the way people are living their lives, demanding this stuff. And, you know, they got a point there. Uh, we'll see if it holds up in court. <laughs> San Francisco this past week uh, had the remarkable occurrence where a judge brought in a bunch of experts on climate, including an undergraduate in college, to put on a like a half-day tutorial on climate science. I mean, this judge really is a sincere... In another case, he actually learned how to program computers. He learned coding just so he could, you know, work on a case about, uh, you know, issues having to do with... Uh, data and Maybe we'll privacy. have to get him on this show. What yeah, it'd be, be great. great. We should look this guy up. Well, anyway, okay. so, and there's this young people's lawsuit also, Our Children's Trust. We'll be doing something on them in the future. So stay tuned for more on that. Great. You're tuned to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and I'd like to introduce our guests this hour. They are Jeff Perry and Lisa Heshong. Jeff Perry has a degree from UC Santa Cruz in cultural anthropology, class of 95. He lives and works at a unique place in California at the Pigeon Point Lighthouse, which has a youth hostel. He's worked there since 97, and he's a general manager employed by Hosteling International, but he also has a big interest 
in keeping the sky dark so he can see stars. He's an amateur astronomer, and we'll be talking with him as well as Lisa Heshong about the necessity of keeping the sky dark, both for our ability to see things in the night sky, but also for our health and the health of other species. Lisa Heshong, our other guest, is an author, an MIT-trained expert in thermal comfort, and I'll let her explain what that is in just a moment. She has written a book about it. She's been traveling and giving lectures on daylighting um, and thermal comfort around the U.S. and the world, and she's currently collecting information to support the benefits of window views in the workplace. She is author of Thermal Delight in Architecture and was recently profiled in the podcast 99% Invisible. Thank you for coming to Planet Watch. Happy to be here. Great to have you. So what is the problem we're trying to solve today? We talk about big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I can't think of a bigger Earth-sized problem than a night sky that you can't see the stars anymore. Or, uh, for that matter, people who never see the sun. (laughs) So let's talk about the dark and the light. Um, Maybe we should first talk about the light, because, Lisa, that's your passion in bringing natural light into our lives. And why is that such a problem? Well, I got involved in this issue as an architect uh, and looking at opportunities for using daylight in our buildings first as an illuminant source to save energy, but that very quickly segued into the benefits to the occupants of being able to have exposure to natural cycles and exposure to the sunlight during the day. And we don't have that very much right now. Not as much as we could. It could easily be a default for both our homes and our workplaces if we put that as a priority. Um, But we've become so accustomed to electric lighting as the default for all of our environments. And doing the segue to nighttime, we've been living now with electric lighting for just over 100 years. So we've been conducting a 100-year evolutionary experiment And what are we learning from that uh, uncontrolled experiment? (laughs) We're learning that electric light um, has some unintended consequences. Humans love light. We're diurnal animals. We like being, we're attracted to light, and we want more of it. Generally, we want more of it during the day and at night. It helps us feel safe. It helps us do our activities. However, our biology is adapted to a planet that cycles through from daytime through nighttime in 24-hour cycles. We call those 24-hour cycles circadian rhythms. Circa means about a day. Um, And it's really the darkness at night that lets our bodies and our metabolism reset itself and get ready for the daytime. So what does that resetting do positively for us when we sleep or whether we reset, whatever that word means? Well, we sleep. um, We help form memories while we're sleeping. We also help restore our immune system and reset it for the daytime. There's many hormones and neurotransmitters that go through a 24-hour cycle, and they need both (coughs) darkness at night and brightness during the day to keep this cycle in sync with all of our other systems. So um, your listeners have probably heard of melatonin, which is considered the master orchestra conductor conducting this whole symphony of neurohormones and various chemicals in the body that all need to work together in sync. And that harmony is over that 24-hour period. 
I remember my mom when she was having sleep troubles around her Alzheimer's had to take melatonin. That's something people can synthesize, uh, synthetically ingest to mimic this. Yes. We can also synthetically create daylight, right, by having these light banks. Um, why are we using those instead of just, you know, going to the nat- natural way? Probably because we can. <laughs> it's easier to take a pill than it is to sleep a normal dark night and a, and a light day. Because yeah. um, we've, we've learned that it's available and we're exploring all possible technologies, but just being as part of nature with exposure to light during the day and darkness at night has sort of been forgotten as a solution. And it's also just easier to slap up a bank of lights in a building than to build the building consciously using principles of daylighting and the natural cycles of solar. Lisa's expertise is also as an architect. That's how she really got going in all this stuff. And uh, modern, really cool architecture does incorporate daylighting and it has benefits way beyond just saving money on electricity etc the health of the occupants of the buildings whether school kids or workers or even shoppers <laughs> turns out to be quite a bit better and lisa has uh, pioneered a lot of the big studies of that hmm, in the amazing. world of science so happier people happier buildings and jeff perry where do you enter this equation uh, you, you said you're an amateur astronomer um, I assume it's in the dark side of <laughs> the dark side of this conversation. Except he runs a lighthouse up the coast from here. <laughs> right. Well, you shine a light into the darkness, but you don't want us to be shining lights into the darkness all the time, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny irony. Uh, and um, what happened to me is when I was moved up to Pigeon Point, I was of course attracted by the light, like everybody else says. Lighthouses are a symbol of uh, hope, and for many different people. So a lot of people are really attracted to going there and they would go to also see the natural beauty of the lighthouse, um, the whales, the harbor seals, the tide pools. And those things are all wonderful and that's what I mostly focused on. But at night we had the traditional lights in front of all of the hostel buildings that would shine to you know, create a nice uh, view for people to see where they're walking around. So they didn't walk off cliffs, for example. Yeah, or <laughs> just trip on something or, you know. Yeah. And what I decided to do was once I was uh, inviting the Santa Cruz Astronomy Club up to, you know, show our guests the, the heavens at night was that my lights were too bright. So I decided to shield them and really kind of reduce the lumens down to what was just necessary and also have much warmer lights that had less blue spectrum in them. And what happened is you're able to see uh, on a good night the Milky Way, which is really a transformative experience if you've never seen the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we all live in. And there was a recent major scientific study that said 80% of Americans and one-third of humanity has never seen the Milky Way galaxy before, which was sort of shocking to me. And ever since then, I decided to become a little bit more active in the International Dark Sky Association. I love that name, by the way. It sounds like some secret society. And you're both members. I'd never heard of it. That's <laughs> all how three secret. Of us. You're all, all members of the Dark Sky Association. Association. <laughs> so, what do you do? Like, get together in a dark room somewhere <laughs> or yep. outside? Under the stars. Yeah, we have a local Santa Cruz chapter where we meet once a month and we're um, 
you know, trying to figure out what we can do because the the recent wonderful technology of LED lighting is fabulous because it, it really uh, decreases on the energy consumption, which, you know, causes some climate problems, as you probably know. But they decided to mimic daylight at nighttime. And so they put really uh, very bright LEDs all over America, but it's, it's it really happened also in Santa Cruz. And the color spectrum, the Kelvin that we measure it in, is really much higher than we like. It has too much blue spectrum, and that's something that will disrupt your, the hormones in humans and animals and cause quite a different problem. So we're trying to get the lights warmer, get them more shielded, so they point where they need to be. We're not against light. And really, the Dark Sky Association, if you think about it, if you were an astronaut shooting off into space, as you get farther away from the Earth, you just see that the darkness is really just the shadow of the Earth from the sun. And as that Earth spins around, we come back into the light. So light's always there. It's just that we need to be in that shadow for a certain amount of time. And we're really so lucky that we get that shadow so we can see all the other stars and uh, objects out there. So the mission of the International Dark Sky Association then is to both decrease unwanted or unnecessary quantity of lighting, but also to change the quality of it so that it is less uh, shocking or intrusive to biological systems. And a big part of uh, what time we have left today, we should talk some about the uh, dangers to the very survival of some really beloved species, you know, sea turtles, birds. Turns out they get thrown completely out of whack by all this newfangled lighting that humans have <laughs> splattered all over the landscape. So, uh, uh, and, and Lisa has made studies of all this stuff and can tell us what the latest is. Uh, well, by the way, there are dark sky parks, both mm -hmm. in the park system and even towns. Portola Valley Ranch is an official dark sky town up to the north of here in the Bay Area. Sorry, Rachel, you were going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, let's let's start with humans and then we'll work our way to the, some of these other species that are affected. And maybe um, Tommy can find us a picture of um, the sky from space. Uh, uh, sorry, the United States... The Earth from space um, at night because these, the lights all around the world are amazing. They're everywhere. <laughs> oh, and speaking of which, Tommy's scanning the computer for your emails. Email us if you want to ask our guests a question. Radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. This is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're speaking with Lisa Heshong and Jeff Perry. They are two enthusiasts of a dark night sky, and they'll also be telling us now about um, a couple of things that might concern us as humans besides resetting our brain. Um, you mentioned hormones, which are part of sleep, but they're also part of reproductive. Do we know anything about how s not sleeping in a dark space may be uh, impacting our other hormonal balances? I, I think it's less of a concern for reproduction than it is for immune function and for cancer. Mm. Um, light exposure at night has been called an a endocrine disruptor. Wow. Um, and so it will interrupt healing processes as part of the immune system that's working at night. Uh, studies have shown increases in cancer for people that have disrupted circadian patterns, um, such as airline stewardesses, or people who have more exposure to light at night. Uh, breast cancer in particular has been associated with exposure to light at night. Um, a number of other metabolic diseases are now being connected shown that disrupted sleep will increase obesity, um, diabetes, 
high blood pressure. So a number of depression. Depression is a result again of that disrupted um, seasonal cycle, mm-hmm. um, and really everything in our body is circadian. Almost every system that we have, and and so we're just beginning to untangle the complexity and the profundity of this disruption. I read somewhere that you can actually um, have a light go on, or you can open up a window on an automatic basis, and even if your eyes are closed and you're sleeping it will penetrate your brain and influence your circadian rhythms, which I found fascinating. So, in other words, if the sun comes in through your bedroom window and hits your face, it's going to do that same thing. Even if your eyes are closed, it'll start resetting you. So, don't sleep in a totally dark room and into like noon or one if you're trying to reset yourself because then you'll be off. But if you let the sun hit your eyelids, it supposedly goes right through your brain anyway. Our eyelids filter about... um, our eyelids let about one-tenth of the light through that hits them, but our circadian system is very, very sensitive. Um, so you will, yes, you can perceive a change in light level, wow. even with your eyes closed. So having just someone come into your room at 6 a.m. and open the curtains might reset you, even well, if it, you're sleeping. And a recent study just looked at toddlers and found that toddlers who wander into their parents' room in the middle of the night with the light on have disrupted sleep for an hour or two following that experience. I've heard this too, that if you're having um, insomnia, you should not turn on the regular overhead light, that that's going to make your brain think it's morning and you'll just be up. Whereas if you use infrared like the astronomers do, it won't trick your brain. And I guess computer screens and phones are probably our most recent culprits for this because they have this blue light, right? And there have been studies looking at exposure to light sources that have that blue content for two hours before bedtime will reduce the amount of deep sleep that you're getting. That deep sleep is the healing sleep where your body is repairing itself. Well, I'm walking proof right now because I I haven't been practicing that well. Um, And I've been having 4 a.m. wake-up calls for sometimes two hours. So I'm going to try that two hours before bedroom time turn off all, off all electronics and lights but i think it's important to recognize that this is not only happening to humans inside yeah. of our buildings this is happening to all of the animals around us they try to get away from the light but the frogs and the fishes and the birds are now living under our street lights living under the urban glow that's created by these pervasive street lights and their biology is being changed. So there's potentially an ecological cascade from the insects that are having their sense of time disrupted, they're hatching at different times, that changes the available food sources for the birds, and it, and it goes on through the whole ecological system. So we could solve a lot of problems, Jeff Perry, if we just turned off the lights at night or had them turned down. Municipalities could could put this into effect kind of overnight almost, right? Because they have a... Do they have a one big dimmer on the whole system or... Well, we really wish they did. The technology is here, but it isn't in every um, system. So that would be great because they're starting to realize that there are... They can put sensors on streetlights and and have timers when the highest amount of use is, you would have a brighter light. And then when there was less usage, you would have a dimmer light. Um, But people could do this at home as well, on their own home or businesses. Uh, The main important thing 
more than anything, is shielding the light from glare so it doesn't directly hit into your eye, but it shines downward towards the objects that you need to see the most. And also having a warmer light, you know, you've heard of bug lights that you put in, that's a real excellent solution, but towards that more amber firelight color is really much, much better. And of course, as you mentioned, astronomers will use a, a dim red light. But shielding is probably the most important thing, and that's what we're trying to work with with public works, and with utility companies is to try to, you know, just use the amount of light that we need rather than this overabundance of light. And actually that feeds into a note for all of our uh, listeners out there across the country and even elsewhere. Uh, there, there is the great possibility of uh, enacting ordinances, lighting ordinances in your town. And some places do have those. Uh, I know another dark sky town way down in the desert, uh, Borrego Springs. Um, but we're working on some things in Santa Cruz here where we can work with local government to uh, get a handle on a little bit more intelligence and wisdom being exercised in the way we implement lighting. And we're hopeful that uh, we can make some progress there. Uh, you know, we're trying a, a friendly approach, and it's an interesting exercise to get involved with local government on, on anything. <laughs> but this is an issue that a lot of people don't even know about. And what about California and the Coastal Commission? Because they, you know, control environmental problems all along the coast. And I would think that these lights uh, shining out to sea would confuse migrating craters in the ocean. So is there is there been a discussion the, with the entities like that about this issue? The California Coastal Commission does have standards for lighting along the coast um, that apply to certain entities. The California Energy Commission also has a code that applies to outdoor lighting and it grades lighting into four zones. Zone one is described as inherently dark, so park and nature preserves. And then zone four, the highest level, is for very bright 24-7 type operations. You think the um, Las Vegas Strip type environment. And every city and town in California has the opportunity to lower those zones and to declare certain areas of their town as inherently dark preserves. So they, they can choose to lower the default zones. Um, so they have complete administrative authority to do so if that is their choice. And is it a matter of simply educating these governing bodies about the importance of this issue? Have you, is that part of your... I mean, it's part of why you're on this radio show, I assume, but is it also part of your organizational strategy? Well, it's, it's outreach that we hope to do, but there also has to be an understanding that this is valuable. And people like light at night so much, they often think that it's a sign of progress. And indeed, economists have been looking at those NASA Earth maps and counting how much light there is and saying, oh, look, the economy's growing. <laughs> um Whereas the uh, recent Scientific American showed that the amount of light at night is increasing by 2.5% per year, mm. um, which is going to compound and grow excessively. We know it's a huge growth area, and we just haven't really been paying attention to what we've been doing for this last hundred years of use of light. Speaking of magazines, I brought in the latest issue of Sierra Magazine. It's the Sierra Club Magazine. I'm going to hold it up to the camera here. The cover article this is the March-April issue. Cover article is uh, 
Lights Out in Search of a Truly Dark Night Sky. And it's got a beautiful photograph on there, taken at night in uh, some place like the Canyonlands with stars in the background. So <laughs> go get that magazine, either join the Sierra Club or get it at your library or buy it on the newsstand. Yes, indeed. Let's talk some more about um, animals, which we just touched on briefly. But tell me some more. Um, you mentioned, you know, species that other species eat are confused about when to breed and insects. What are some other specific stories? Um, for example, turtles have been, you know, confused about where, where to come on to the beach to lay their eggs. Is that something either of you are familiar with? Uh, the little bit I know is that when the turtles are hatched, and I've seen this actually happen in Costa Rica, they'll uh, the the mother turtle will you know crawl up onto the sand, dig a big hole, lay a bunch of eggs, and then go back into the ocean. And when the when the turtle babies hatch out of their eggs, they come up to the sand and they're looking for that shimmering light on the ocean. But it might just be that the town just down the way has a bunch of shining lights, and they crawl towards that, thinking that is the ocean, and then they eventually get you know taken out by another animal or they dehydrate. Also, Jeff mentioned earlier the concept of bug lights. I think a lot of children today would have no clue what that is. When we were little, we would turn on a light at night and there would be moths flying all about. It was really annoying. And so we would use these yellow, amber lights that didn't attract the bugs. Well, those moths that have been pulled to the lights have been dying in droves. A recent study in Germany found that the biomass of insects in the last 40 years has dropped by 75%. This is not all just pesticides. The number of moth species that are not just endangered but that have disappeared is astronomical. Um, we are losing insects to streetlights, um, mayflies have a hatching event and they all swarm around the streetlights until they die. They exhaust themselves and die. We haven't been studying this or counting these effects, but we're beginning to see the ecological cascade of the loss of that um, biomass. Um. And when we use the word biomass, I'm always wanting to remind people that these are our co-fellow um, earth travelers, and without the insects, there's no us, basically. I hate to inform the bug haters of this, but... Um, <laughs> If you don't have pollinators, you don't have crops. Most of the crops are pollinated plants. If you like wine and chocolate, you need bugs. And, you know, back east, I grew up in Virginia, and in the summer, something which I never see here in California is what we would call lightning bugs or, you know, fireflies. And interesting little side note on that, there are certain parts of the world where fireflies exhibit Synchrony. They, they flash in unison like a whole half mile of riverbank in Malaysia. Well, it turns out there are a few places in the U.S., notably the Smoky, the Great Smoky Mountains, where there are synchronous fireflies. The way they do it is they'll all together, a whole herd of them or whatever they call them while they're flying around, will go bang, 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 and then be light, silent, dark for half a minute, and then bang, 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 bang. Well, anyway, people have gotten onto this. I was thinking, hey, I want to go see those. Everybody else has had the same idea. They're going now and stumbling around in the dark with their flashlights blazing, and guess what? It's totally screwed up, this behavior, and, you know, it's endangering the existence of these wonderful fireflies. So the parks have gotten on it. They, they've, to their credit, they have heavily regulated what you, what you need to do to, to be able to go in there and look at those things. Lisa probably knows some of that story, too, can tell us more. But 
Well, and we are going to be showing a documentary ah, yes, on yes. fireflies in uh, Santa Cruz for a function we're calling Earth Night on April 18th, where um, a number of speakers are going to be talking about the consequences of light at night. Including Lisa, if you want to meet her and see her in action with some of her expertise. Yeah, that's a Wednesday. It goes from uh, mid-afternoon into the night. <laughs> We're going to have telescopes and wine and all sorts. It'll be a great time. Wednesday, April 18th. Put it on your calendar. Where do we go to find out about that? I mean, it's put on by UCSC also, the university here. So It's on the UCSC events page. Right. Okay, good. Great so. to know. And so um, the two of you are part of this organization. How many chapters? Is it, you know, really a big deal? Is it all over the world? Sounds like it is from the name of it. It is all over the world. I, I don't know how many chapters there are. There are a couple hundred in the United States. Um, Again, that's the Dark Sky Association. The which International, international dark, dark Sky. Dark sky. It sounds so to, mysterious. We have to learn not to fear the dark. That's right. <laughs> it's really a wonderful website. So you were talking a little bit about educating yourself. Uh, I've learned so much by just going to that website. And uh, International Dark Sky Association also published a really easy book on fighting light pollution. That's also a quick read. So if, you, if you're one of those people out there who want to try to do more to reduce the light pollution and, and spread the word, then uh, check out the website, the International Dark Sky Association. Yeah, and here's the easy, it's a very easy one to remember, just darksky.org. <laughs> and the first thing you'll be hit with is a glorious picture of a you know, panorama of the night sky with the Milky Way shot from a really dark place. And let me remind folks, they can still write to us. Um, sometimes people write to us uh, after the show's over and it's hard to ask our guests the question. We can always forward them the email. Um, but if you'd like to uh, get in touch with us and ask a question, it's Watch, all one word, at gmail.com. And Tommy, do we have one? I think we do. Yeah. Eugene just sent us a question. Hey. I've read that even so-called warm white LED lights have a blue LED emitter coated with a phosphorus that re-emits the warm white. Thus, there is still a prominent portion of blue spectrum coming through. Some newer LED technology uses a deep violet emitter that supposedly is less harmful to the eyes. Sora Inc. offered LED bulbs with this technology. Can your guests comment on this? Boy, that's a technical question. <laughs> but, of course, Lisa is a technical international expert on this stuff, so take it away, Lisa. <laughs> well, reducing the blue component of light is important. However, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is just reducing the quantity of light that we're exposed to. Um, and so... If we can dim those lights, even if they have a small blue component, by turning them down, that's very, very effective. Biologists have also warned us that although they have isolated some receptors, some chromophores that are biologically active in this blue wavelength, there seem to be others. They are just now beginning to look for other light-sensitive molecules in our physiology um, and you know stay tuned we don't know that we have the full equation and so we don't want to jump to conclusions um, on what the right prescription is until we know more so the, the safest thing is to simply reduce the quantity and time of exposure to light after dark 
Hope that helps. Okay. Great question. Very technical. Um, and if we have more, uh, we might have a few more minutes for other questions about how to reduce the light pollution. And also, um, you know, there's really two sides of this equation, the light part. We haven't talked about it all that much, which is how to increase, besides just going outside, <laughs> the amount of natural light in your day. How do we do that? What are some other tricks? We talked about turning off electronics two hours before bedtime. We talked about buildings, but we haven't talked about them all that much. So what are some things you're doing? Well, sitting by a window is a great thing. Um, and again, studies have shown that workers who work near a window sleep better. They get almost more an hour more of sleep per night on average than people who work in the interior of buildings. And maybe they don't go to sleep on the job And they <laughs> don't go to sleep something. on the job as much, yes. <laughs> Um, buildings last for 50, 100 years, so getting them right and designing our buildings so that workers have access to windows and skylights and views, um, that they're not spending all day long on the interior of buildings, has become very important part of healthy buildings and the green building codes. Um, however, there's a lot more still to be done on that front. Yeah, actually, just a little side note, Lisa and I are both um, members of the board of directors of a regional organization here called Ecology Action of Santa Cruz. One of our main things that's built up our multi-million dollar a year budget is lighting and efficient lighting. Uh, and, you know, efficiency, again, saves money and, you know, the environment, but... There is this issue where, say, in Santa Cruz, okay, you got these newfangled LEDs, they're great, they use so much less energy per amount of light emitted, but so then they just kind of go hog wild putting the things in because, hey, we save so much money. So that's where these lighting ordinances can come into play to, to you know, re reduce that quantity of lighting, as Lisa has just mentioned. And people, you know, go bike riding and hosteling to get out and about, just having outdoor time um, and educating people that they need to get outside more. Uh, we're reducing our amount of vitamin D hugely as well, so there's other costs to not getting outside. Well, and there's another big issue that should be especially important to parents, which is it has been found that children who spend the majority of their time indoors under artificial lighting have a tendency to become myopic, in other words, mm. short-sighted and need glasses. So policies in Australia and Singapore and Hong Kong have now started pushing children to spend at least three hours a day outside during their early youth until they're 10 or 12 years old to avoid the developmental consequences of myopia. That makes total sense. And, you know, children probably would prefer 24-7 outside. If you, you know, are ever around young children, they want to be outside. You don't have to push them out unless they're, you know, addicted to video games. Then you have to <laughs> kick them out of the house. Um, but I do remember there was a transition, really, really obvious one, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, where you'd walk down a city street, maybe it was the late 90s, when there were a lot of these devices started really coming online and computer games. Um, you would walk down a city street, and it, it was coincident with what was a perceived crime wave, you know, of random crime that was really hyped in the media. So you had people keep keeping their kids inside for safety. And in some cases, it was a real threat to their safety, and other times it was a perceived threat to the children's safety. And what we did was we created other problems for them, like myopia, like obesity. Um, and suddenly you would walk down a city street, there'd be no kids. Like, where'd they all go? 
It's like the ghost town in the middle of the day on a Saturday. There was nobody outside. Mm. And that's, mm. that's, you know, one of those things that could change. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, back in the summer of 1982. I was the... Uh, uh, education and curriculum director of the original computer camp way back when microcomputers, you know, the Apple II and the Atari were just coming on. And I took my job. I mean, I hired instructors and we came up with curriculum, but I considered my main job to get those kids outside at least a couple or a few hours every day so that they'd become more well-rounded human beings. So anyway, uh, yeah, we need yeah. more of that. And when you see, you know, some of the computer games are so realistic, they look like you're outside. Sometimes I'll say to my daughter, wouldn't you rather be like just outside <laughs> instead of in a simulated, you know, wait till virtual reality really gets realistic. I'm like, yeah, but... Well, we're, real, real reality is awfully interesting. <laughs> we're, we're doing the same thing with light that now can be so well controlled. They're talking about simulating daylight inside of buildings. Um, Which is cheaper than redesigning the whole building, right? Maybe. Well, half, of, talking the, to an half, architect here. <laughs> half of the buildings that will exist in 50 years haven't been built yet. Uh -huh. So, we need to get those new buildings constructed with as much daylighting in them as possible. But actually, all the older buildings before the 1950s were designed with ample daylight. Hmm. Um, so, it's just this very brief sort of post-war period where we, we turned away. And is a lot of that... Uh, that sort of um, screening or what is it, photovoltaic, not photovoltaic, but just um, sort of shades over all the windows where you, you're cutting out a lot of the natural light? Well, that was meant to keep solar heat out of the buildings to reduce our cooling loads, um, but with proper design of a building, so awnings, exterior shades, we don't need to have really dark glass. Uh, dark glass is not the best solution. But neither is reflective glass, right? Because that just um, causes more heating islands in global warming. And, and horrible glare. And glare, For, right. And horrible glare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas is a great example, horrible example of architecture, if you, well, I'm editorializing here, but that big golden tower with the T on it, that's the worst one. <laughs> it's really, really reflective in a bad way. Another little side note, when I was at NASA Ames, uh, I went to Mount Lemmon in Arizona, outside of Tucson, once to do some astronomy for a couple of evenings, and um, it was the first time I experienced this. The, they're really good at keeping rooms dark for the astronomers who've been up all night looking at the center of the galaxy. Uh, you know, you'd be up all night and then you'd go to bed at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning and... I actually slept till 10 or 11 because they kept it so dark inside those rooms, which in general we don't want to do, but mm -hmm. in that case you kind of do. Has anyone um, ever quantified the amount of the globe? Maybe you said this at the beginning that it is no longer dark at night. Is, I think you might have mentioned you know, what percentage now of places. Well, Jeff cited that in the United States, 80% of the population can no longer see the Milky Way. Uh, I thought you had said they just hadn't, but you said can't. That's can't. very different. They can't. They cannot. From that location. we got to change that. got to make it like 10%. That's a tall order. Hey, you know, it, we're sort it of... It can be done. It's only been around for 100 years, and really this excessive use of, of nighttime lighting is, has really only occurred for the last 50 since... Hey, well, that's a hopeful note. Jeff... And, you know, some people might be thinking, you know, well, what am I going to do? I like to, you know, watch TV at night. I like to look at my computer at night. And, and one alternative is just to go outside and get back to the reality and look up into the sky. And there's probably, you'll be surprised, there's a lot of amateur astronomy clubs all around the United States, all around the world. 
And once you get into these dark areas and you turn off your cell phones, your eyes will adjust to the night. You'll get this night vision. You'll be able to see much clearer than you think you can. And after about an hour of being in that darkness, you really can see some wonderful sights up in the night sky. And you know, since we as humans evolved for a long time without flashlights, and I doubt we walked around with torches, we must actually have some sort of night vision that we have just sort of lost the ability to tap into, but it must still be there. Oh, it's still there. They, they say it takes about an hour for you to really get your night vision back. So if you go to a, a darkish place, as dark as you can reasonably get to, and just kick back and, you know, open up your eyes and, and look for a while and, you know, put your cell phone away. Don't bring a flashlight. If you really, you know, want to have a flashlight, put a red cover over it so it, at least it kind of can minimize that. But even red light will disrupt your night vision. So you really mm -hmm. want to have it as dark as possible. And then you really get to see the fainter stars out there and realize what a complex universe we really all live in. Well, and thank you so much. Uh, last thoughts before we I was going to say that children that have grown up out in rural areas have that confidence of moving around at night. Um, it's really much more of a confidence issue than it is a, a vision issue. I remember having a visitor from New York just terrified and gripping my arm to death um, out at night. And what's that sound? What's that sound? And I just said, you know, it's okay. There's nothing here that can eat you. And after a while, they relaxed and enjoyed the stars. But at first, it was a terrifying experience. For me, it's the opposite. I go to New York City and 3 a.m., everybody's wandering around and makes me quiet. I can't sleep when I go to New York. Um, <laughs> it's just too much happening. Um, so it really depends on what you're used to. And like you said, you can get used to the dark night and explore it. Yeah, well, we're sort of slowly segueing into the last few minutes of the hour, what I call the oddball stuff component. And, of course, you all are welcome to hang out. Uh, well, you rode over here with me. Anyway, but um, uh, there's an interesting thing about uh, at night, you know, we say we don't see color at night. It's the rods rather than the cones. But there actually is a slight color sensitivity in our night vision system to the green part of the spectrum. And a really interesting thing about that is that Guess why that is, evolutionarily? Well, the only light really available in the night sky, other than that coming from the stars and stuff, is this glow in the atmosphere called the air glow. It's from a very slow-motion aurora, and that peaks in the green part of the spectrum. So you could think, hey, well, isn't it lucky that our night vision is especially sensitive to the green because that's what we're providing? Well, that's why, <laughs> evolutionarily, why we are the most sensitive to the green at night. So there you go, the air glow. Look that up. Thank you so much, Joe. That was, that was a cool thing. I want to just thank our guest, Jeff Perry, yeah. who is a lighthouse keeper at um, the Pigeon Point Lighthouse and an amateur astronomer, and Lisa Heshong, who has been speaking with us. She is the author of Thermal Delight in Architecture and an expert in natural lighting. Thank you both for being here on Planet Watch. Thank you. Our pleasure. Yeah, and, and we've just had, we're in the first week of spring now in the Northern Hemisphere, or fall in the Southern Hemisphere. We've just passed the equinox, which was uh, early on Tuesday in uh, many time zones, including those in the United States and the Americas. But equinox, what does that word mean? And this is very relevant to our discussion. It means equal night. <laughs> the equinoxes are the only days of the year when the sun is above the horizon for the same amount of time, it's below the horizon everywhere on the planet. Now, on the equator, every single day of the year is that way. The sun is above the horizon the same amount of time as it's below the horizon on the equator, every single day of the year. But on the equinoxes only, <laughs> that's true everywhere on the planet. 
And if you happened to be standing on the North Pole, you would see the sun going around the horizon, right on the horizon. And looking down at the ground, you would see that motion counterclockwise. Whereas if you're at the South Pole, looking down at the ground, tracking the sun, it would be going around the horizon clockwise. Now, that's a fun thing to think about. I realize many adults and college kids don't even know that, hey, counterclockwise is actually clockwise upside down. <laughs> if you make your hand you know, to your friend in the, in the uh, sense of a clock, you know, going around clockwise, and then uh, look in a mirror, <laughs> you'll see it going counterclockwise, et cetera, et cetera. Play around with that. So, um, and uh, another little fact for you to think about is because of the atmosphere, uh, when the sun actually sets, when it actually geometrically goes down below the horizon, you still see it above the horizon. The, the whole width of the sun is still actually sitting on top, appears to be sitting on top of the horizon because the air bends or refracts the light, which is coming from below the horizon, but it curves into the air of our atmosphere from the vacuum of outer space and fools us into thinking the sun is still sitting on top of the horizon. So uh, you actually see the sun for, you know, uh, uh, several seconds longer than it's really up. And likewise, at sunrise, you see it before it's really up. And of course, when it's going all the way around the horizon all day, like at the equinoxes, well, in Antarctica, where the sun should have set by now, uh, because it's their fall equinox, it's past that, they're probably still seeing it for a few more days before it really then finally appears to set. So anyway, uh, on that note, um, I guess we can uh, bid you all farewell for another week. Next week is April Fool's. Uh, just try to imagine what we're going to come up with for our April Fool's show. <laughs> and It'll be for sure real science. For sure. Real, real science. Real science. Um, you can bet uh, next week will be full of good stories. Uh, watch out for April Fool, uh, April 1st um, keep, on Planet Watch. And keep an eye on the sky, meanwhile. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. Thanks so much for listening. Let's give a shout out to our supporters on Patreon. It's a way to help Planet Watch get out to other stations and a special thanks to MZ for sponsoring the program. Don't forget to check out our podcast on planetwatchradio.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.